One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. It's never an easy call with so many problems in the world to know where to direct the money that you donate when you want to help out in this world. But what I can tell you is that when you donate to CAMH, you're saving lives. We know about the opioid crisis. We know about the mental health crisis. They are doing the work. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help us treat addiction and build hope. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. Andre Demise, contributing editor at McLean's and partner at the podcast network Resistance Noir. Welcome back. Thank you for having me. Today, stonks. How does they work? We will talk about the big short on GameStop. Also, Facebook. They beg the Trudeau government, please regulate us. We'll probably also talk about dog shampoo. Glad to have you here. Thank you for having me. This episode of Shortcuts is brought to everybody by Ben Morley, Carolyn Wilson, Don Kerr, Dwayne McMurkey, Carlos Campos, Rosemary Colleen, Paul Kautz, and April. Media, journalism, should be about the truth. Canada Land reports the truth, even if Jesse doesn't like it. Time and time again, I find that Canada Land sets a standard long forgotten by mainstream media. That's why I support Canada Land and will continue to do so until I run out of money. Andre, I have been uh, struggling to follow this story of this Redditors uh, shorting GameStop and owning the hedgies. The problem with that is I'm dumb and don't know anything about finance or stocks. Uh, you're a communist who does know about stocks. Is that correct? That's correct. Strangely enough. All right. I'm going to turn to a communist for stock advice. I'm interested <laughs> I just from the media aspect of like how people getting together on mass on Reddit can have an impact like this. I know you've explained this via TikTok. None of these suit-wearing motherfuckers accounted for the fact that Redditors could meme multi-billion dollar hedge funds into possible insolvency. And on the other side of the coin, some of these Redditors- Can you explain it to us on this show? 
Okay. Uh, the thing to know is that it's not exactly Redditors memeing their way into a hedge fund company destroying itself. Although there is the matter of a hedge fund company um, getting nailed. What happens is that uh, when a company like Melvin Capital takes a short position on another company like GameStop, and then Redditors decide to hold the long position... It's not as though it's, just, it's the people in a tug of war with a massive corporation and the people winning. What happens is that the people make a bet in one direction and then other large hedge fund companies make a bet in that same direction and are able to capitalize off of people rushing towards the same stock. So it's not exactly the people versus the hedge fund companies. It's the people leading large capital management companies in a direction and those large capital management companies cannibalize another hedge fund company, if that makes any sense at all. It makes a bit of sense. Here's how I thought this happened. You've got this subreddit. What's it called? Wall Street Bets. And there's like 3 million people on Wall Street Bets. Yeah. Well, there are now. I, I don't know that there were 3 million people <laughs> before this whole thing went down, but yes, there are there are now millions upon millions of people that joined the subreddit. And we can we can trace this back to like one dude on that subreddit. Uh, I don't know about that. Like uh, there is one person that had a, a fairly long position. And when I say long position, I mean like people, you know, buy a stock and then hold it. That's what's called a long position. So uh, there was somebody who had something to the order of like $50,000 invested in mm -hmm. GameStop. And has had it invested, I believe, since around 2019 and said that uh, they understood the fundamentals of the company, that it was looking very healthy, that the revenue was good, so on and so on. And the bet happened to pay off. So here's the thing. You can actually find out by looking at what are called stock quotes, who has a short position in just about any company. NASDAQ releases stock quotes. The New York Stock Exchange releases stock quotes. So you can find out who's taken a short position and then you can bet one way or the other. So I guess what they did was find out that this company called Melvin Capital had a huge short position in GameStop. And by taking a massive bet in one direction, they were able to swing the market the opposite way that Melvin Capital had themselves invested and it paid off for this one Redditor and his fortune went from $50,000 to the effect of like $22 million in the course of a month. <laughs> okay. All right. So you've got this one individual through like available information. He can find out that a big hedge fund and for our purposes here, I don't think we need any more detail, but to explain to people who might not know that buying a stock short just means you're betting against it. A major hedge fund was betting against GameStop. GameStop is like, I don't know, like the blockbuster of games, obviously not going to be a company that's in good favor, but he was sort of saying, well, they've gone too far. People still do go and buy video game consoles and trade in their old games, and maybe there's a bit of value left there. I'm taking a position that it's worth more than the hedge fund is saying, but then I don't know if it was this one Redditor or if it just became a mass mob effect, but as I understand it, the vibe on this subreddit was not so much, hey, GameStop's great, it's worth you know a uh, hundred times more than the stock is trading at right now. It became a rallying cry of, fuck the hedge funds, yeah. they're betting against this GameStop, let's screw the man and pump it up. But of course, 
even in that kind of prankish chicanery of of like let's let's be the Robin Hoods here and let's stick it to the man, there are also plenty of people who are hoping to get rich. It, like at what point does that just become a pump and dump like anything else? Now we're like leaving the realm of what GameStop could possibly be worth, and we're just building a new bubble. And you're saying let's not kid ourselves that these are all individuals on Reddit sticking it to the man because once it became apparent that that's the way the wind was blowing, other hedge funds and big institutional investors rode that wave as well. Yeah, like uh, BlackRock, for example, which uh, held a significant portion of GameStop stock. BlackRock, which is the largest uh, capital management company in the world, made over a billion dollars on this bubble. Uh, another company called uh, Citadel Capital Management. Citadel, which is basically like an algorithmic investing firm. Uh, now, I don't know how much they made, but I know that they were able to claim a significant stake in one of their competitors, Melvin Capital, because they ended up having to bail out Melvin since uh, Melvin's uncovered short position ended up screwing them. So when I say uncovered short position, and, and this is the important part here that I think some people miss, when you're in a short position, you don't necessarily have to own the stock in order to bet against it. You can sell a contract to somebody else saying, I think this stock is going to go down. You think the stock is going to go up. If it happens to go up, fine. No matter what the stock is worth at the end of this contract's expiry date, I will sell it to you for this agreed upon price, but I don't think it's going to go that way. So good luck to you. Now, the problem is if you don't own the stock and you sell that contract, then it's up to you to locate shares of that stock so you can fulfill your obligation. And the issue with Melvin Capital was that they didn't own the stock and they had to go and find it. But since everybody else was buying it up, they ended up getting what's called a stock squeeze, meaning that there's just no stock available to buy in order to fulfill their obligation. Uh, which uh, causes huge problems for them. Um, and that's why they ended up having to uh, get rid of all of their uh, their short contracts and sell them off. All right, I don't care necessarily, and we don't really talk about stocks. Um, there's something kind of fun about this story. I was certainly compelled, and I think why we're talking about it now is just that when it gets mass distributed on a platform like Reddit, I'm interested in the dynamics of how you know masses of people organizing online are changing everything. And it's interesting to see them change the stock market, or at least in this instance, that's happening in the way that they've changed media and everything else. And it's, it was sort of fun to see people who I think have been flagrantly twisting the rules to their favor as big institutional investors saying, hey, wait a second, <laughs> this isn't fair. This isn't some, something that people are supposed to be able to do. Uh, we need new rules to stop them from doing that. And I know that John Stewart got involved in that conversation and uh, Elon Musk as well. I was also interested in some of the opinionating around it. You know, here's Navneet Alang in the Star saying that the surge in GameStop stock caused by a small group of small investors could force a rethink of modern democracy. What have you made, Andre, about this sort of massive mainstream response to this incident? Yeah, I don't really know about all that. <laughs> I don't think that it's going to require a Massive rethink of democracy. I, I like Nevneet, but uh, this, like, like I said, this isn't the small guy sticking it to the man. BlackRock is worth something to the order of like $1.6 trillion. There's not enough Redditors in their parents' basement to put together $1.6 trillion and compete against this company. It's just not going to happen. That's true in, in a head-to-head -head competition, but you don't need a lot of chaos to create really big problems. And now that there's a financial incentive to create chaos, like like you yeah. said, this one guy who had his $50,000 bet and ended up uh, a multi-multi-millionaire. On paper, on paper. 
Because he's still holding the stock. I mean, he could lose it all. He could, yeah. but uh, I think that there is sufficient incentive for a hundred or a thousand people who would be quite happy to be paper millionaires to like figure out you know, let's stick it to this hedge fund or here's a different rallying cry. I mean, we, you know, there's all kinds of madness and ways you can motivate people to rally en masse. And that can have a, a radically destabilizing effect on the whole market. That is possible. I mean, they're also buying into companies like AMC, the, the movie theater chain. They're also buying into BlackBerry. They're buying into Nokia. And who knows which other companies they, they are going to decide that they want to uh, pump up later on. So it's interesting. It kind of remains to be seen what efficacy this has over the long term. But I'm just in it for the jokes. And I'm, I'm very happy to watch as these hedge fund companies get burned, because frankly, I think they're parasites on the industry. I think that some of the large institutional investors, especially pension funds that bet alongside these companies or give them money to invest that are probably going to be harmed by this whole pump and dump fiasco may have to have a major rethink about where it is that they find value and where they find long-term growth. And uh, if you're trying to find long-term growth from retail investors due to the fact that we're in a pandemic, maybe that's just not something that you should be doing. Who knows? And as a communist uh, in this uh, you know era of late stage capitalism, as it's referred to, do you see this as a canary in the coal mine? Like, is is this like? It seems wild that like um, you know the markets are rallying as they are, given the state of the world and given the, the pandemic, and here we are pumping up companies on the basis that they look like dogs. Like, it feels like we've just entered a, a, a absolute realm of fantasy in terms of valuations. No, actually, I don't think so. This has been happening since the Reagan years. The financialization of companies and propping up what looked to be like a, a practically dead companies, I'm thinking of, for example, like WeWork, the shorting of companies that may otherwise be healthy, but under due to extenuating circumstances, their market valuation could be down. All of this stuff has been around since like the 1980s and the 1990s when there were, you know, regulatory changes that happened in the U.S. that allowed some of these larger companies to swoop in and take control. So it's been a very long time since the uh, since market activity was based on anything remotely resembling productivity. And now it's just pure and rampant speculation. So I, I actually don't see there being a huge change to what there was before. I think it's just now publicized because it was shareholder activism on the part of smaller investors that was able to swing markets in a single direction. But I don't think anything is necessarily changing. Like I don't see anything about the fundamentals of the market changing. And I think it's fairly common for disasters or for huge events in human history to actually benefit the market because there are companies that are going to be well positioned to profit off of human misery. And that's what we've seen over the last year. Andre, we're going to duly note some things that we feel like duly noting. You know, that's just the way it's going to go. All right. The first one is just like, it's more of the same, but it's sad and it bears uh, it bears a mention here. The bloodshed at Bell Media is just atrocious. 210 jobs have been cut so far at Bell Media in Toronto, according to the website cart.ca. CJAD in Montreal completely closed, reported by the Gazette. Owner Bell Media has laid off all of the radio station's reporters on Monday. We're recording this on Wednesday. Um, CTV at Agincourt, they're going to get the bad news today. 
this is really extensive. Uh, there are tons of actual news gathering, news reporting jobs being cut here. You know, Bell had a change in leadership at the top. A lot of managers and executives uh, associated with the old regime are getting cut. But uh, obviously, this is the next step in what the big telecoms in Canada are up to, which is like they're, they're posting record profits, incredible revenues. They're still, of course, collecting their wage subsidy checks from the government, but they're divesting from from news, they're divesting from actually making content and they're going just down to their like bare minimum of what they have to provide. And uh, all of the government subsidy plans and programs for supporting news are, are doing nothing to stop the carnage here. And, uh, you know, pouring a little liquor out for all of our colleagues within the Bell network of companies and also just noting to our listeners that we are, we're down that many more journalists in Canada. Yeah, I find it rather ironic that uh, just a few days after their Bell Let's Talk campaign, which I'm pretty sure that you and I are on the same page where it comes to that campaign, mm -hmm. uh, that we want to talk about mental health in Canada, uh, which you can generally only afford to get help with as long as you have a full-time job and benefits. And just a couple of days after appending Bell's name, to the state of mental health in Canada so that we need to quote unquote raise awareness, 210 employees end up losing their full-time jobs and are likely not going to be able to afford mental health care. So duly noted. Andre, what do you have to duly note? I don't know if you saw that uh, the NDP was uh, found to have not incorporated many of the members' votes, many of the, the resolutions uh, during their convention seem to have just been ignored. And uh, a, a group of people who were uh, uh, taking very close note of the, uh, the members' resolutions just found out that uh, the NDP is not abiding by uh, the results of their 2018 convention. So if you go to uh, CourageCoalition.ca, you can get the uh, the whole report of this. But I found it rather surprising. It says that of 29 policy resolutions, only 13 were added to the version of the policy book that shows up on the 2021 convention website. So that, that was pretty interesting to me. I don't get it. <laughs> so basically, a bunch of dippers get together for a convention in 2018, and they say, all right, well, these are the, the resolutions that we're going to adopt. Uh, everything from like carding to uh, environmental policy and all of the other things that we want to put in our party's federal policy handbook. These are the resolutions that we're going to adopt. These are the policies that we're, that we're going to push. Mm -hmm. And the NDP is like... Um, yeah, nah, a bunch of those were just not going to do that. You know, whenever I hear um, people decrying the state of Canadian democracy or the Trudeau government, I, I just feel like as much as I might agree with every single individual criticism, I'm like, isn't just the problem in Canada a lack of options for the voter, a lack of viable options? That's absolutely true. Now, me being a communist, you know that I'm going to squawk about there being no left-wing alternative, but there really is no left-wing alternative in Canada. It's it's a, a bunch of parties that are vying to uh, appeal to the quote-unquote middle-class voter. It's a lot of people that think that voters are like skittish deer or gazelle or something. And if you approach them with policy options that are a little bit too far to the left, that they're going to uh, take flight and be scared off. So we don't have any sort of labor-based party in this country. We don't have like a socially democratic alternative or a democratic socialist alternative or even just a straight left-wing alternative. It's a whole bunch of people jockeying for the same kinds of votes using different rhetoric. Duly noted. I have one more, Andre. Sure. 
I want to duly note uh, that I briefly felt warm and and even generous thoughts towards John Kay. Oh, boy. All right. (laughs) Here we go. You know, my colleagues here said, how much time do we really want to give to John Kay's stupid dog shampoo incident? And I think the answer is a considerable amount. (laughs) If you missed this, and few did, I think this might have been the biggest tweet John Kay has ever had. John Kay tweeted over the past weekend, um, Quillette editor John Kay, formerly of the National Post, son of Barbara Kay. John Kay tweeted, so it turns out I've been using dog shampoo on my hair for the last few months. I only discovered it when I ran out and needed to get more. This is partly my own fault, but it doesn't help that Arm and Hammer has the word pets in like a four-point typeface. I'm guessing this is common. Many people responded to dragging John Kay for this uh, because he he posted a photograph of the shampoo. Uh, A lot of people are quick to point out there's a picture of a dog on the shampoo. (laughs) Dude. Uh, and, And people like... It was not complicated by transphobia or racism. It was just John Kay being a doofus. People were really enjoying making fun of John Kay. And it was fun to read this. And, and it, it reached its apex when uh, Seth Rogen responded. Oh, no. With the concise tweet, you're stupid. <laughs> oh, God. Does Jonathan have, like, an urge to stick his head out the window as he's driving? Does he... Does he, like, roll over on his back for belly scratches? I would like to know these things. See, this is just good, wholesome fun. And that's why I felt, uh, at first, very generous towards John Kay. Because I read that, and I'm familiar with John Kay online. And I know that there is some percentage to which he is playing the fool. And is kind of in on the joke. And I actually feel like that's maybe the best thing about John Kay is a willingness to play the fool. I mean, that's part of comedy. Like The, the tweet itself, as a work of comedy, hey, everybody, um... I blame Arm and Hammer for the fact that I've been washing my hair with dog shampoo. It's a little bit funny, but it's everybody's responses that make it really funny. It's sort of like everybody wants to be Bugs Bunny, but you need an Elmer Fudd. You know, you need yeah. the fool. And then it's funny when you get a pie in the face, but somebody has to be willing to take the pie in the face. And it's a generous kind of comedy. And I felt that to the extent that John Kay was like inviting uh, people to make fun of him. Good. Why don't you just do that instead of all that other atrocious shit that you do? This is a much better thing you could do for people during a pandemic on a weekend. You know, and then Seth Rogen discovering the existence of John Kay and dunking on him like that. Hooray. But it all fell apart. John Kay immediately started to whine and complain. Oh, I'm being trolled by Seth Rogen. You've got millions of followers. This isn't fair. The comedy falls apart then. You can't have Elmer Fudd saying, oh, I was in on it. I was playing the fool. Uh, Don't think that I'm actually dumb and trying to get the rabbit. Like, it just robs it of all of its currency. He broke the wall. And then he complained to Jen Gerson at the line. And he, he said so many dumb things. He said... I'm a professional shit disturber, and this is part of my brand. The joke is on me, I guess, for briefly feeling warmly and generously to John Kay, who just turned out to be the biggest crybaby on Twitter now that Donald Trump is gone. Duly noted. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, It's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, 
and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. We hear a lot about the opioid crisis. We talk a lot about the mental health crisis. These are serious problems. These problems affect us all. They've affected my life and my community. They're not intractable problems. I don't know what's going to solve them on a policy level, but day-to-day helping people, that's what CAMH does. They do it on the ground when people need help, and they do it through research. The team at CAMH gave our team a tour of their facilities, and we were really just blown away by the incredible, heroic work that they're doing every day. They treat everyone with dignity, and their research is seeking and finding real solutions for everyone around the world. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction, and build hope. Andre, while our backs were turned, the Trudeau government has been working to radically transform every single thing that we do on the internet, like the entirety of online media news communication radically uh, being transformed in ways that um, I think is widely going ignored and and probably should be getting a lot more attention on Canada land. But it's hard to get your head around because they've completely changed the way that they're trying to do their digital policy and their initiatives have completely taken a 180. And because the heritage minister, Guilbeault, keeps putting his foot in his mouth and saying wild things like, what's the big deal with licensing all news sites? And then everybody freaks out and goes, oh, wait, I didn't mean that. Or he'll say, you know, it's no big deal. We just need to get money from the big tech giants. And you're like, what? He's effectively muddied the waters in a way that has made this hard to follow. But there have been some progressions this week, and I want to kind of try to wrap my head around and and explain to you and our listeners what I see happening here. How's that sound? Sounds good. It also sounds like something that's like way over my head. Let's try to bring it down here. And and first of all, like I'm not the only one who's just like, what the f-? like Andrew Coyne said the main bill uh, initiative here, C10 represents one of the most radical expansions of state regulation in Canadian history. Michael Geist has pointed out, uh, internet lawyer Michael Geist, the government's total shift on digital policy is remarkable. Just 18 months ago, privacy and affordable wireless services were the top priorities. Well, here's what they've shifted their priorities towards. All of this occurring under a cloud of an increasing global backlash against big tech. And it's it's multi-pronged, of course. We, we're scared of fake news and Facebook is looking like a villain. And then the New York Times writes about Pornhub And all of a sudden, the will to regulate the hell out of everything is there. The political will is there. And you know who it's there among? Facebook. Facebook is running to the Trudeau government and saying, okay, we can't handle this anymore. We want to be regulated. And that's what happened at Heritage Committee just recently. 
Facebook is saying like they're taking the, the temperature. And for a while on this show, listeners were used to us hearing that Facebook was, you know, sprinkling some dimes to news outfits or trying to show that they were pro-democracy this way or the other. And all those were efforts to kind of like stave off regulation. Like we don't need to be regulated. We can handle this ourselves. I think that they have recognized that's not going to satisfy public concerns. I don't want to sound alarmist here about a slippery slope. I don't think I have to be alarmist because that slippery slope is already evident. One thing that came out at committee, Andre, the NDP and the conservatives were saying, we're not comfortable with this this new buddy-buddy relationship between Facebook and the liberal government. Why is Facebook directly recruiting from the liberal government? We already know that Kevin Chan, their chief policy guy, is like, he's a career liberal uh, who was a policy advisor for Stefan Dion, I believe. The slippery slope here is that Gilbo's response to that is that those questions were unacceptable because they chip away at democracy. And we all saw with the riot on Washington what happens when you chip away at public institutions. Yeah, yeah, I can kind of get that. I just wonder if there is a side motive to it. Because a lot of people think that there's only two options where it comes to some of these large internet companies. And that is either uh, heavy regulation if not possible, like nationalization or something to that effect. So, you know, regulating them to the point where you could possibly regulate them out of existence and pretty much own them or just let them do some sort of like laissez-faire stuff. But there is the third option, which is to uh, force them to become open source and offer transparency to the users in terms of what information is being collected, uh, how they are uh, managing the algorithm, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that for a lot of people who um, who are on, on the side of, you know, having these uh, these large companies be more open, more transparent, and have essentially like less ability to collect massive amounts of data and then not tell the rest of us what's being done with it is uh, to push them in an open source direction. So I think that, you know, running towards the Canadian government and asking for more regulation, and I, I could see this happening in the United States as well, um, is, is masking a possible third alternative that they don't want people to begin clamoring for. I think you're absolutely right. That, I think, speaks to the earlier ambitions of the Trudeau government towards looking at privacy considerations. I think that's a move towards the kind of open source initiative that you're describing. But there's more than that because, of course, we were talking about antitrust until recently. But instead, why does Facebook want to be regulated? Because that is how they can maintain their legitimacy and and their monopoly. Right. And the government's priorities here are so strange. I know that they want to regulate the internet and streaming services specifically and basically replicate the old system. And that's also getting wound into this whole thing under under C-10. Uh, the bill to amend the Broadcasting Act is to treat streamers like Netflix as if they were traditional TV broadcasters. But there's like definition errors like, like when you get out of the public airwaves and, and spectrum scarcity, you can't make a Netflix law. You've got to make a law that's just about websites where you charge subscription fees. Well, that covers Canada land. And Michael Geist explicitly said, though the government says they're not trying to uh, license news organizations because uh, Gilbo, you know, learned after he put his foot in his mouth that that's actually like not a great idea uh, in a society like ours. The actual definitions that they're putting forward for what they consider an online undertaking does include Canada land and dozens of sites like it. And what it means to be included is we would have to register with the CRTC. We would have to uh, be regulated by the CRTC and face fines if we were in violation of those regulations. Um, So maybe we're not licensed, but we are regulated. It's a distinction without a difference. The regulations have to do with things like paying into a CanCon fund. 
all we make is CanCon. But we would we would have this extra tax that would go into some you know pot that would then go to like CBC Productions and other things, which is absurd to me. And then we would have to like be accountable to the CRTC in terms of our actual content, like discoverability, which content are we putting above other content, and mm-hmm. that would apply to Canada Land and everybody else. And that's a separate kettle of fish than the link taxes that they're contemplating, which is to basically create a clickbait regime where um, news sites, and not all news sites, just government-recognized news sites, would get paid from Facebook or Google when you click on their news stories, which gives an incentive for them to create the most clickable news stories they can. We all saw how well that went in the past. Yeah, I had a look at uh, you know some of the uh, pieces of legislation that uh, Michael Geis was, was highlighting, and I thought... All right. Well, this is exactly how you don't want to begin regulating and licensing internet operators. It seems like there's a lot of hands in this pot that don't really have any idea how the internet works. So, oh my gosh, I'm just going to end up mangling this analogy. So let me back out of it for a second. When you have a bunch of boomers that don't know what the fuck they're doing and are operating (laughs) off of the CRTC model, this is not television broadcasting. There's, as you say, not not a limited spectrum. There's not only so many channels available. So the scarcity of that means that you have to preserve the amount of Canadian content that's available. I can understand how that works in terms of broadcasting. But when you try to do that with the internet, there's like tubes and wires going everywhere. There are people subscribing to different models for different reasons. And there's enough of it out there that you don't have to account for any degree of scarcity. So trying to regulate the internet, like you're trying to regulate television, makes no fucking sense to me whatsoever. And if anything is going to do a couple of things, one is going to end up transferring money from smaller creators to larger uh, legacy companies, i.e. Canada land to CBC. That's exactly what I was thinking of last night when I when I had a look at this. The second thing is that it makes it much, much harder for smaller startup companies to get anywhere. It, it necessarily favors the larger companies that can navigate all of these regulations, can pay lawyers and other assorted staff to make sure that they dot all the I's and cross all the T's. But if you're a small, if you're a small creator or a medium-sized creator that's just trying to get by in this industry, that as you can see, even the the larger legacy companies are having a hard time keeping their employees staffed. It, it basically means that we go back to a model where you can only get your news from the largest organizations available, and even they don't know how to have, they don't know how to uh, uh, put forward a profitable model that keeps people employed and keeps their customers informed. And they don't care. I mean, just as we see Facebook rushing to the government saying, okay, regulate us, here we see uh, Troy Reeb, who's an executive at Chorus, uh, the vice president of broadcast networks for Chorus. He's writing an opinion piece that this bill is key to saving local news media in Canada. So what's going on there? Like our, our actual legacy media is essentially throwing in the towel as they just like, you know, shed their own news employees. What I see is them divesting from news as an actual going concern. And they're saying, all right, let's just figure out a regime here where the government pays us to do news. We'll do as little of it as possible. And we actually welcome this extra regulation. I see in this, similar to Facebook, uh, an attempt to just um, lock arms with government and solidify their dominant position to the detriment of anybody who's actually trying to do this work to turn a profit, who's actually trying to do this work to do the work. It's a real David and Goliath thing here that's uh, coming into focus here. I'm, I'm deeply concerned about this. And, you know, whenever I talk about this stuff, I have to disclose, like, I'm talking about this as a critic analyst reporter, but I'm also talking about it as a business owner who's just like, what is my government doing here in league with these massive competitors of mine? 
because it, it ain't anything that helps me. Yeah, no, I got that. I mean, to me, this is what happens when people that uh, have a hard time programming a VCR or had a hard time programming VCR when VCRs were available never updated themselves and are now trying to craft legislation around things that they have no idea how it works. Well, that's your Canada Land Shortcuts. I can be emailed at jesse at canadaland.com. I read everything you send. We're on Twitter at Canada Land. Andre, where can people find you and where can they find your podcast network? So it's the Resistance Noir Podcast Network. I run the, uh, the Drop Squad podcast. You can also find me at McLean's Magazine where I'm a contributing editor. And if you need to get in contact with me, it's uh, mailbox at andredeviz.com. We have a website. It is canadaland.com. And that is where you can sign up for our newsletter, which will keep you up to date with all of our reporting, all of our podcasts. It's a good thing to sign up for that newsletter at canadaland.com. This episode is produced by Tiffany Lamb with additional production by Kevin Sexton. Our managing editor is Andrea Schmidt. Our theme music is by So Called. People, we are hiring. Canada Land is looking for a reporter. We are looking for a producer. We are looking for an audio editor to work on our flagship Monday Canada Land podcast. Check out those postings at canadaland.com slash jobs. Syndication of Canada Land is handled by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. If you like what we do and you'd like to receive ad-free versions of these podcasts, plus all kinds of other stuff, including socks, well, we need your help. So come to canadaland.com slash join or click the link in the show notes. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada Land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada Land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.